This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Well, the new year is upon us, and that means that it's time for public radio programs across the globe to throw together their year-in-review programming. And that's what we're going to do today on Undisciplined. Now, I'm not going to lie. When we first started talking about doing a year-in-review show, it was because it's actually really hard to book guests during the holidays. But as I went back and I listened to the shows we broadcast in 2018, I started to realize why these sorts of programs get put together at this time of year. Looking back, it's actually pretty cool to consider what we've done in our first year on the air. Now, if you've listened to our show before, you know our shtick. We bring together two scientists from different disciplines. We interview them one at a time, and then we introduce them to each other. That's made for some pretty unlikely matchups, which are reflected in the titles of each episode. Episode 4 was The Evolutionary Biologist and The Movie Psychologist. Episode 8 was The Medical Sociologist and The Snow Hydrologist. Episode 21 was the biomedical engineer and the quantitative analyst. Today's matchup is a little different. It's the quirky public radio host and the long-suffering public radio producer. Hey, Alyssa. Hi. That's Alyssa Roberts, who does double duty as the producer of this program and is also a producer at KUTV in Salt Lake City. She's also sat in as our first guest host earlier this year, and she killed it. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Alyssa, you didn't come to this by way of science. In fact, I recently found out that you used to think science was dumb and boring. So what changed? It kind of started for me when I was doing the production of our first episode. Um, and one of the guests was talking about invasive species in Hawaii. It was the koki frog. Oh, yeah, that was Karen Beard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was great. She's an ecologist and she studies frog populations in Hawaii. And I guess Hawaii didn't have any frogs and they actually ended up with the one of the potentially most annoying frogs you can get as their first. Like um, a really loud one. It was a really loud frog. It started to change things for them on the island. Cokies have been called invasive potentially because of their negative effects in terms of the ecology, but also mostly because of their negative effects for humans. Because these things are really loud. Yeah, they're really, really loud. And the main reason that they've gotten so much attention is that they invaded this silent forest in Hawaii where there were no native calling animals of any kind, really. I guess there was a native cricket. But other than that, it's a pretty silent forest. And a lot of people moved to Hawaii to appreciate that. And then this really loud frog invaded, and it's, you know, 90,000 frogs per hectare. It's extremely abundant. It's really, really loud. Um, its call is above usually the statute for noise pollution for towns. So all of a sudden, outside of people's windows, there's this really loud calling frog that's keeping people awake um, and that they can't stop. And so, yeah, it's the social context really that caused people to originally pay attention to them. The thing that got me about this interview was it was I was doing the production of it at the same time that all the headlines were about mass incarceration of migrant children at the U.S.-Mexico border. And they were, you know, that was like the family separations. It was a really big deal. And the language to describe this invasive frog species was like so similar to the language that I was hearing people using to describe the like migrant children. 
So there's been renewed debate in recent years, or maybe new debate, I should say, in recent years about how to view non-native species, even down to the words we use, like alien and invasive. How would you like your research to inform that evolving conversation? Yeah, so <laughs> um, there's yeah, there's different ways to view non-native species, for sure. Um, and historically, we did kind of take this like almost like warlike context, like these are aliens or these are um, exotics that we have to wipe out. Um, and and so there were th- these words that had kind of subjectivity involved in them. And scientists have kind of tried to move away from that a little bit and just call them non-native as a descriptive term to describe that they're just not from that area historically. Because there are non-native species that can be positive. And of course, you know, if you look at our agriculture or all kinds of things, we introduce non-natives all the time that that are, are, are beneficial to humans. And so, you know, when we use the term invasive, though, then we're implying that there's negative impacts to humans or to the ecology of the area. It just struck me and I was like, this is super, it was, I don't, it was just really impactful. And that's when I was just kind of like, this is important. I'm really glad I'm doing this. We matched Karen Beard with Veronica Pozo, a social scientist whose recent work demonstrated a really frightening connection between social media and police violence. And we didn't know how they were going to connect, but they did. Ecology is kind of like that. It's a messy field. There's always hundreds of species out there interacting with each other. And, um, a lot of times the relationships aren't like a super strong interaction that then leads to another super strong interaction. A lot of times it is more complicated and um, dilute. So um, how do you explain that? Um, I think that's hard because people do want a simple answer. And a lot of times our research doesn't necessarily show a simple answer. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> well, in, in my case... We looked at everything from, um, you know, we tried to make it as simple as possible in terms of collecting data and in terms of how we can frame the whole analysis. But then when you are, you know, getting shocking results that are very difficult to explain, then is when, like I mentioned before, you... In, in our case, you don't just rely on one particular type of science. You rely on different things. You grab things from criminal justice. You, include, you introduce statistics. Then you go to psychology. So those are the complexities of the research. And, and, and you have to be flexible. And I think that flexible here is a very um, important word because you cannot just rely on, on the, your limited knowledge, but you have to expand it and look for answers and look for people and talk to people and say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what we found. Now, what do you think? And then frame it in such a way that um, all the all types of audiences can understand it. And what part of the ways that we do that is that we try to have one technical, very technical paper, then we have something we we are in the conversation, for example. So we have another very non-technical summary of what we found. And that's how we try to target different audiences and explain this in an easier manner. I, I don't know. I guess that at some point, what it seems complex is not as complex. 
when you sleep over. <laughs> Since starting this program, the question I get asked the most is how we decide which researchers to put on a program together. And people always seem pretty surprised when I say that we aren't ever really looking for areas of research that overlap. I really like that about the way we book the shows, but I it's hard. I have to I find myself saying, you know, like, oh, which researcher would I rather have together? Like, who do I think is going to make a connection? And I have to kind of stop myself and be like, okay, put the people together that you don't want to put together and see what they're going to do, you know? And it's not always going to work that way, but, well, actually, it doesn't always work. No. I don't think that this means that alcohol is horrible. I mean, this isn't, alcohol isn't like, Smoking. I mean, this is not really? putting alcohol into that category. Really? So in, in, in uh, the cancer world, we think it's like smoking. Really? Mm-hmm. That was oncologist Theo Ross and psychiatrist Sarah Hart. And the funny thing about that show is that out of all of the shows we've done, those two researchers probably had the most in common. They had both done extensive research on the intersection of genetic medicine and genealogy, and the conversation was really interesting, but they didn't seem to hit it off. No, and they shouldn't really have to. Yeah, that's definitely a fair point. This ultimately is a show about research. It's not the love connection. But there were also shows that the guests really hit it off, and those are really cool. The one I always think about is when we brought together an undergraduate evolutionary biologist named Rachel Casper with one of the world's top behavioral neuroscientists, Anna Clara Bobadilla. The mechanism between the plant and the bee itself, um, in order to, you know, uh, pollinate, the bee will come to it, but the bee also gets this caffeine uh, substance, which is pretty remarkable to see that it's also shown in insects um, and compared to, to rats even. I, and it makes me wonder if that BDNF is actually in, in bees. And I'm not, I, I honestly am not quite sure, but that's something to think about. Yeah, and I, it's something that I um, realized when you were talking, and I really like what you said about how you now respect the bees very much. And I think that's something that uh, we have in common. is like once you start really working with uh, all these different models, you actually are really impressed because I don't know why we think like we are maybe the smartest species. And then you start looking at how in detail about how all the other um, animals behave and you realize that they're really smart. <laughs> they can do a lot of things that we uh, don't give them credit for. So I really like when you said that you respect them because that's something that I think we, we should all do. <laughs> I totally agree. I, I totally agree. Another show we did where I felt like the guest really just connected in an amazing way is when we brought together social scientist Shafali Pottle and ecologist Dan McNulty. Now, Shafali's recent work deals with the way police officers approach their jobs, and Dan's work deals with the way that animals interact with one another. The coolest thing for me about that was they just like clicked immediately and they like they knew where they were connecting and they said, oh, fears playing into both of our research, which I didn't see coming at all. You know, with wolves, they're very predictable, as I said, in time. We know when they're active. We know when they're inactive, generally. Spatially, you know, they're a wide ranging predator that I can kind of show up anywhere but not at any time. And so prey or sort of, a, you know, elk are, are ready for them at certain hours of the day. And so I'm wondering if with the police officers, if it's a similar situation, that put, I, I mean, I can just imagine showing up at someone's doorstep and knocking on the door and, and being fearful just simply because I don't know who's going to answer the door and what kind of mood they're going to be in. 
I can, so the unpredictability of policing, I can imagine, contributes mightily to fear. W- would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, when I, when I do interviews and I ask police officers, so what exactly does the public not understand about your job? They say exactly what you just said. They said that like for every call, they just have no idea what they're walking into, right? When somebody calls 911, the pieces of information that they get are just basically kind of the location and like a little bit of a description of what's going on, right? But you have no idea. Is it a hoax? You have no idea. I mean, the sad tragedy that happened in Dallas where it's an ambush, like they're calling just, you know, to to shoot cops. But these are all the realities that they have to deal with. And that's exactly what they say is that for every single call, it's completely unpredictable. So they are in a hyped up mode because of the unpredictability. But that's exactly right. It's like they're, they're walking into situations where they have to kind of assume the worst. You know, the fact that predators in the systems that I study are quite predictable in time and space, I think that's one reason why in these large animal systems, fear may not play the kind of role that a lot of scientists and members of the public may think it plays in terms of driving ecological processes, because these predators are pretty predictable in various ways, both in time and space, depending on the specific predator that you're talking about. What happened in our show on police and predators is what happens almost every week on Undisciplined. It's sort of like watching a Venn diagram get built in real time. I feel like I can visualize it happening as I'm sitting here in the production studio, but you have more to focus on when you're hosting. So what does that look like for you when you're paying attention to 17 things at once and also this three-dimensional invisible Venn diagram? This three-dimensional chess that we play? Well, it depends on whether the guests are in the studio or not. We often have at least one guest with us in the studio. And usually when I'm interviewing the other guests, I can see them scribbling notes or doing that thing where they're you know that thing where their eyes pop open and they start nodding their heads in that awesome way that people do when they've made a connection to something? And then, you know, they start scribbling down more notes. And it's almost like they can't wait to ask a question. And sometimes their questions are better than yours. Well, OK, that's true. And I, I'm OK, that's true. It's kind of the point, too. I think it's kind of the point. But it also sort of drives me nuts, especially when the questions are ones that in retrospect, it seems like so obvious I should have asked. There was an exchange between a wildland ecologist named Paul Rogers and an inorganic chemist named Lisa Burrow. And I remember I was just sitting there and I was hitting myself in the head by the simplicity of the question and also the beauty of the answers. These hidden signals, these hidden mechanisms, I think in a, in a sense that's the new frontier of science. We're not finding new lands. But we're going in deeper and we're finding these connections, perhaps, that we didn't know about and are not obvious to people. The first thing I have to say as a chemist is yay. (laughs) Because when we think about chemistry, we're thinking about the molecular level and mechanisms that are occurring at the molecular level. And so I get excited when I hear things like chemical ecology and thinking about how chemistry can contribute to understanding the kinds of things you look at, which are are much more a part of our daily lives and easier to see than the molecular level. Yeah, and, and, and at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes I'm thinking so big and about big connections that people uh, write me off immediately and say, that's, that's too big, that's too large, it's our globe. But that's something that's a little hard for people to swallow at this point. Yeah, that was one of the ones where it was just like seamless. 
One of the really great things that I think happens in the studio when they make a connection and I look up through the window and you're just pumping your fists in the air like you just scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Yeah, because when that happens, it feels like we won the latest round of this game that we play each week. One of the times was when we put together Jason Shear, he's a nanotechnologist, and Jordan Smith, he's an environmental social scientist. And Jordan was actually in the studio. I remember watching his reaction when you did that. What did he do? I think he was just kind of like, is this happening? Like, what's wrong this with this what guy? We do? It, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> what did I do to make him do this? No, we definitely didn't know how those two guys were going to fit together because Jason had developed a shrink ray that could make cell cultures change size and shape. I mean, like a shrink ray. And Jordan had looked at the ways in which bad air impacts people's ski plans. Mm -hmm. But when they just started talking, they sort of made this connection about the ways that different forces push and pull on everything in life. When Jason was talking, he was mentioning mechanical and topographic cues for cells and where they, where they move and how they, how they grow. That might be a direct connection to thinking about, you know, how people actually move and, and where they go. Absolutely, Jordan. And, you know, and while you were talking, it really struck me that it's not much of a stretch to represent the effects on cells that are migrating or extending part of their cell body as really being a, a push and a pull. And that happens to be the first clip we've played so far today with two male guests. What do you think about that, Matthew? Yeah, that's definitely worth talking about. Um, so right around the time we were getting ready to launch this program, the science writer Ed Young wrote a really reflective article about gender balance in his articles. And what he did is he looked at all of his articles from a year, and he saw that only a quarter of the sources were women. And in more than a third of the stories, there were no female voices at all. And that's not uncommon in science journalism and science conferences. Even though there are a lot of amazing women in research, their voices often get drowned out. I remember you telling me when we first started doing it that if we ever had, I think you said if we ever have more than two episodes in a row with two male guests that I was supposed to punch you or no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, it was really important to me and I know it's really important to you and I'm glad that we've made that commitment. Mm -hmm. And I think more than 50% of our guests have been women on the show so far. My daughter has certainly appreciated that. I have always wondered, does Spike have a favorite show? I think she does. I think it's the one where we talked to a herpetologist named Grace Dorenzo and an anti-aging researcher named Laura Niedernhofer. Laura, I'm so excited to introduce you to quantitative ecologist and a very good friend of frogs, Grace Dorenzo. And Grace, this is biochemist and enemy to zombie cells, Laura Niedernhofer. Hi, Laura. Hi. I have to say, I think you're doing incredibly important work. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your research as well, because I feel like, so your work with anti-aging, but then... My work is with a skin fungus, and so the skin fungus is damaging cells. And so do you see any sort of possible therapeutic? You know, it's, it's a good question, but I think what we're learning in, in both of our studies is that Mother Nature is pretty powerful. We've got an, you know, an anti-aging therapeutic coming from fruits and vegetables, and your fungus is like one of the most potent poisons out there. It's hard to imagine that, that chemists could do a better job than just simply Mother Nature, right? Yes. 
one of the things I really love when I listen to that show is that we actually lost one of our guests partway through. But because of the miracle of pre-recorded radio and because you put so much time and care into editing each episode, Alyssa, nobody's ever the wiser. One of the other benefits of pre-recording is it really helps the guest relax. And for a, a couple of the researchers that we've talked to, this is their first time doing an interview like this or the first time doing an interview for radio. Before each show, I know you talk to them and tell them what to expect. But even then, things happen sometimes that we can't prepare for. Mm-hmm, like um, one of our guests ended up under his desk. Hey, Alex, you don't happen to be on a speakerphone right now, do you? No, I'm in a boomy office. Would it, I could go under the desk. <laughs> Would you mind going under the desk? Not at all. <laughs> Let's see if that's better. <laughs> you poor guy. <laughs> no, it's all right. And we're in. I'm like in a, I'm in a little fort here, a little science fort. What are the other big editing challenges you face? Well, Matthew, I hate to say it, but... You suck at saying people's names sometimes. I, I practice and I practice and I still screw it up. <laughs> On the line with us from upstate New York is Rick Geddes. Ah, darn it. I'm going to do it again. It's Getty. Rick, tell me one more time. I apologize. Either way. Either Geddes? way, but normally Geddes. Geddes. Okay. On the line with us from upstate New York is Rich. <sighs> On the line. Alyssa is cracking up at me right now. This is the easiest name I've had to do today, too. So I think I have an idea of what some of the challenges are, but what do you see as the biggest challenges when you're hosting the show? You know, I cut my teeth on public radio by guest hosting a show called Radio West. If you haven't heard Radio West, it's a really amazing hour-long interview program with Doug Fabrizio, who's just a master of this work. He's such a good interviewer, but one of the things I realized when I was sitting in for him is that it's not enough to just be a good interviewer. Hosting a show is like conducting a symphony. There are so many moving parts, and that's something you learned recently, Alyssa, when you guest hosted for the first time. So how was it? How was hosting? I feel like I'm a better producer because I, I know what it's like to be sitting where you're sitting now, but I have to say that I'm really glad that I don't have to do that all the time. We've had really great feedback on that show, though, so I do hope you'll do it again. Yeah, it was fun. And one of the fun elements of the show is the audio files. That's always my favorite part. I always like finding out what you're going <laughs> to, what way you're going to find to connect a random audio clip to Dark Matter, for instance. Yes, jungle out there. Poison in the very air we breathe. You know what's in the water that you drink. And then the idea is that we tie those audio clips into the introductions of our guests. Now, check out how this all comes together. Newman's song, It's a Jungle Out There, was on his album Dark Matter. And dark matter, microbial dark matter, is at the heart of the research of my first guest. Can I be honest? Yeah. There is one audio clip that I would not like to hear for a long time. Oh, I know which one you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We had four different bee experts on the show this year, and I should point out that that is not even a full year. That is like eight months. We record the show in Utah, after all. This is the beehive state. 
And there are a lot of great researchers here who study the flying insects of the Anthophilidae clade. There are also a lot of national parks in Utah, and our next guest figures that presents a really unique opportunity to study bees. And Joseph Wilson, you found a lot of bees there, 660 of them. Now, of all of these new species, maybe of all of these new morpho species, did you have a favorite? Uh, that's tricky because 660 species, how do you choose one? So I choose... Like choosing your children. Yeah, I know. I like them all, right? Laura Spears, we know that non-native species are a concern in every place on the planet. What makes bees a particular concern? So some bees are very good at uh, being transported to new areas, and they tend to nest in items that can easily be moved over to uh, the U.S., Emily Sadler, I know you're just dying to correct me here because I'm saying this wrong, right? Those fingers we call stingers are actually stings. Mm -hmm. Why does everybody say it wrong? It's just easier for people to say and it's caught on and and even entomologists say stinger. So it's okay. I'm not going to get mad at you if you say it. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) We're calling Rachel Casper a bee biologist, but that's just one of many scientific hats she wears. So tell me about how you got started with bees. How did that happen? Because I heard that you were afraid of bees at one time. (laughs) Yeah, actually growing up, I was deathly afraid of bees. How I got intertwined actually was just trying to dive into the research realm. And I just fell right into this perfect lab that studied honeybees. And, you know, studying how they regulate the temperature of the hive was just astounding to me. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. They were all doing really great, really fascinating work. Mm-hmm. And that's completely true, but I just really, we need to lay off the bees for a bit, Matthew. I'm just, I can't do it anymore. Okay, I agree. For a bit. But what about guests, though? What are some of the guests that you would like to hear from again? I've thought a lot about Bruce Bugby's research. He studies how to grow plants in space. A little over a year ago, Bruce Bugby began his latest project with NASA, a space technology research institute called the Center for the Utilization of Biological Engineering in Space, or CUBES. Bruce Bugby, welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you, Matthew. I'd also love to have Anna Cohen back. She uses lasers to map ancient cities. I just saw Black Panther, and I'm like, what's going through my head? <laughs> is it like you could use this to like find Wakanda? Uh, yes, maybe. But my understanding was that you had to go through some sort of tunnel there. Oh. So I don't know. <laughs> I also think that we should try to get back Amanda Sobolewski. She talked about news and the news, or wildebeests, news. Anybody who has spent much time watching wildlife documentaries has probably seen these iconic images of wildebeests crossing the Mara. And every time it ends with that one poor wildebeest that doesn't make it. But what made you start thinking about what comes next for, for those news? My background was in wildlife biology, studying how animals move across landscapes. And at some point, I started to want to turn that question on its head and ask, what does it mean for a landscape to have an animal move through it? How do the animals influence the ecosystems through which they pass? Well, those are just some of the guests we're going to try to bring back to the show this year as we embark on a monthly feature called the Science News Roundup. On the last week of each month, we'll gather up a few scientists from different fields for a discussion about the big stories in science from the past 30 days. And I really hope that we get to talk about your new book, Matthew. Is that coming out, uh, I think, in April? It does. It is. And yes, we'll definitely find a way to shamelessly self-promote it. 
I've been curious about it. What is it about? Well, it's a book about nature's outliers, about plants and animals and other living things that have evolved to be exceptionally big or really small or super fast or tremendously smart and what scientists are learning from them. And it would then be called? (laughs) It's called Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. The subtitle is The Biggest, Fastest, Loudest, Deadliest Book You'll Ever Read. And one more shameless plug here, you can pre-order it now wherever you buy books online or ask your local bookseller to save you a copy. So we're almost out of time, but before we go, is there one more episode you would like to hear a clip from, Matthew? One of my favorites was the one where we brought together a biomedical engineer named Elizabeth Farhees and a quantitative analyst named Sherry Towers. So you guys both came into this discussion with these huge, amazing toolboxes. When you were listening to each other think, did you start firing off ideas about ways that you want to uh, better explore or just maybe questions that you have about each other's research? Yeah, I I had a question for you, Sherry. Um, When you were talking about all these different variables that might affect higher crime rates, I was, you know, thinking about all the variables that might affect our cell culture systems. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we base it on what other people have done. But I was just wondering from your own point of view, how do you approach a study without just a ton of bias? I'm concerned that are we just totally biased and there's something that we're missing because we're only focused on this one thing that other people have seen. So I was just wondering how you navigated that. It is true that oftentimes you're biased by what other people have done, like what to look at. I try to, uh, especially from my experience as a physicist, we're kind of trained to think outside the box. You're always looking for those confounders. You're like relentlessly looking for the confounders. And so that comes from my training that I'm always trying to think of what other things can be confounding my analysis. But you're right that even if you're trying to do that, that there can be bias that comes from the other studies. And there's also other types of bias, kind of bias that you really need to avoid. And that's the bias that if you don't get the answer you want, you don't publish it. Say we went through this entire analysis and we found that there was no dependence on weekday, no dependence on temperature, no dependence on anything. We call that the boring result. And actually, in this case, it wouldn't be a boring result because that would contradict the whole body of literature that came before it. But let's assume we were the first to do this study. It would actually be difficult. Unfortunately, in academia, it would be difficult to get that published just because it's the so-called boring result. But even beyond that, there may be a tendency of researchers, if a certain analysis doesn't give them the answers that they were expecting, that perhaps they might be less likely to publish it. So there's all kinds of biases that can be introduced in the kinds of analyses we do in academia. And it's our job as researchers to do our best to avoid these kind of biases. Yeah, thank you. I don't know if you meant that to be a pep talk, but seriously, we are. I'm dealing with that with a student right now because it, our genetic profile isn't isn't what we thought it would be, and we're going back and forth with well, these two genes are not expressing at levels we thought. Should we publish that? And it's of course we should, right? But then that doesn't fit our story. So then what do we do? Because <laughs> we have to get published, right? You know, so thank you for that pep talk because I think we need to put it in. And even if we don't know the answer, it's so, still some, it's the truth that we found in our study. And I think that's just as valuable as whether or not it fits within the whole story that we're, we're trying to tell. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Whether this year-end special is the first episode of Undisciplined you've listened to or you've tuned in since day one, we want to thank you. You can download this and other episodes of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. 
Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. That's me. And our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. Our host is Matthew LaPlante. And that's me. Thank you for listening. Now go have big ideas.